Welcome back to the Health in Motion podcast. I'm your host, Evie. If you are new here, welcome. I want to give you a breakdown of how we run each episode. So in the beginning, we start with breath work, and then we also will review the health challenge of the week from the previous episode. So we're going to jump into our breath work right now. For today's episode, we're going to do apnea breathing. So if you're not familiar with what apnea breathing is, it is basically ratio breathing. I have a YouTube video explaining what apnea breathing is, so I will link that in the show notes as well. But for this apnea breathing exercise, we will start with a five-second uh, breathing. So for, this is going to be a five-second inhale through the nose. It's going to be a 10-second hold and then a five second exhale through the nose. So this might be difficult where you're holding your breath for 10 seconds, but that again relates back to your CO2 tolerance, which we've talked about. We have a breath work episode that talks about that too. So again, we're gonna do a five second inhale, a 10 second hold, and a five second exhale. So we're gonna go ahead and start with the five second inhale through the nose for one, two, three, four, five. Hold for 10, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and exhale for one, two, three, four, five. Slight breath, now in for five, four, three, two, one. Now hold for 10, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and exhale for one, two, three, four, five. All right, beautiful. So you can go ahead and keep doing that. If that feels uncomfortable, I highly recommend you check out the video on apnea breathing on my YouTube or the breathwork episode where we talk about why that could be uncomfortable for somebody. All right, the health challenge from last week, we had Andrew and Sarah from Prevail on the podcast, and they talked about um, strength training, and they also pro proposed the challenge to the listeners to increase your strength in some form. So for example, if you're deadlifting 135, maybe try to go up to 140. Or if you're doing 10 push-ups, try and get to 11 or 12. So in some capacity, they challenged you to increase that. So I actually did that this past uh, weekend. I was working out and I thought about this episode. So I thought, okay, I need to increase my uh, pull-ups. So I did a little bit more pull-ups. I did more reps in my pull-ups than I typically would. And then I also was thinking about that when I was doing single leg Romanian deadlifts. And so I increased my weight by five pounds on that too. So thanks to Sarah and Andrew for that reminder, because sometimes we get really comfortable in what we're doing. So that was a great reminder to uh, really challenge yourself and not get too content with what you're doing. All right. So today's special guest is a self-taught farmer who transformed his own urban yard into a farm to feed his community. From market manager to market vendor, he has grown his farm into a full-time business, which I am so thankful for. He's my farmer, and I'm excited to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Farmer Andy. Thank you for having me. Glad yeah, to be here. I'm excited you're here. It's, Thank you. It's nice to actually talk in this formal setting because we always chat at the market. And now it's like, let's bring this conversation to life and have more people be able to listen. Exactly. And at the market, you know, sometimes depending on the time of the market, sometimes it's a little busier. So you get, you know, you get to ask one or two questions and over the season, you get to know your farmer a little more, but this would be a little, little bit more in depth than what you would get at market. Yeah. And this is good for me. I was telling you before we recorded because I... 
I have so many questions too, of just like how, what goes into this? Like, wh- I want to know all the details. So this will be good. Cause I also feel like I'm an audience member. Yeah. And so, I, think, I think sometimes people hold out at market. They won't ask the questions they really have. They feel like I don't want to intrude on their time. And it's like, if you got a question, ask your farmer They're, They want to teach people. They want you to know how the food is grown that you're eating. They want you to know what goes into it, the work and everything. So always feel free to ask questions at market, but this would be good too. Yeah, no, this is good. And that's good advice because it is intimidating, yeah. like as a consumer, because you're like, I don't, it's busy. I don't want to take up their time. There's more people here, but I'm really curious, like what goes into this. So that's good advice too. Exactly. Yeah. So how did you get started? We, so first of all, share what your business is, what makes it unique, and then also how you got started. So my business is Cincy Urban Farm. So we're located in Cincinnati. We're not in the heart of Cincinnati, like OTR downtown. Uh, we're kind of in a subdivision of Cincinnati called Sharonville. So it's a small little city, you know, little intimate setting. Uh, but I just live on a regular residential lot. And I've turned over the years, I've turned my whole front yard, backyard, side yard, pretty much any square inch of grass that I can grow food on, I've turned into a space to grow food on. So I got started. Uh, you know, I started watching YouTube, seeing people out in Las Vegas. Uh, there was one guy who really inspired me named John Kohler of growing your greens on YouTube. He, you know, years back, he turned his whole front yard into raised beds. Uh, he was a vegan and I started, you know, watching some of his channels and what he would do is he would, you know, educate people on how he did this whole process. So he would show people what his yard looked like, you know, what the raised beds he was building, the materials he was using, how he's irrigating, what he was growing, you know, all the food that he could produce off of it. And I was, you know, intimidated by it. And I was like, I've never seen anybody do this. You know, you see these things, you're like, is that, can that really be possible? And, yeah. you know, over the years, I've just transitioned my yard and I'm, it's absolutely possible. Anybody can do it. That's, you know, wanting to do it. Yeah. So were there permits involved? How do you, can you just do that to your yard or what goes into that? I mean, there is permits if you, I'm more of like a, just do it and ask for forgiveness later. You know, I don't ask for permission. I ask for forgiveness. So I just, you know, I started. So when I started, I started back in 2012. Uh, the reason I got started was because of a plant-based diet. So I, you know, transitioned, stopped eating meat, uh, any animal products I stopped eating. And that's when I started getting more into like my nutrients of what I was consuming, what I was putting into my body. Uh, I wanted to have the freshest, most nutrient dense produce. Uh, I figured if I'm only eating fruits and vegetables, you know, those should be the highest quality. They should be the freshest, you know, versus some of the stuff you get at the grocery store. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know how it was grown. You know, you're just kind of blindly eating it because you think it has these nutrients that, you know, people tell you, you know, like everybody should eat kale. And it's like, well, how was that kale grown? You know, how long has it been since it was harvested? You know, does it really have that nutrients that you think it has? Uh, so that's how I got started was I switched to a plant-based diet and I wanted to start growing my own food. So before 2012, I hadn't grown, I didn't grow up with a garden. I didn't grow up on a farm. You know, I was just a regular suburban kid, you know, playing in the streets on the blacktop. I didn't, didn't start, you know, I never even grew green beans growing up. Like most people, you know, yeah. talk about. What was the first thing that you start that you planted and that you grew? Kale. Okay. <laughs> Everybody, you know, everyone's like, you got to eat kale. It was kind of the hype of the kale scene, you know, it's like kale's yeah. the best thing for you. You should juice it. You should eat it in your salads. And it's just like, so I grew a lot of kale the first year and I learned like, 
all right, that's a lot of kale to, you know, you could consume so much kale, but that's like pretty much all I planted. I was like, kale, kale, kale. Yeah. You know, I kind of like jumped on that health bandwagon and then I, you know, start to learn like, all right, a little bit of diversity is good. You know, I got the kale down and then, you know, I started growing like some celery and some lettuce and some other greens and some tomatoes and yeah. kind of d- diversified. But yeah, I started with the, you know, the basic kale. Yeah. <laughs> and did you start your entire yard or was it like just a couple raised beds? How did you start and turn it into your whole yard is now a garden? Yeah. So it was a progression, you know, if people think like, you know, I'm just going to jump into it and, and I'm like, you know, you can do too much at one time. It's just like anything, you know, if you take on too much at one time, you're going to get discouraged. You're not going to have enough time to do it. So I always tell people, you know, the best way to start is to start small, you know, start with a little four by four, you know, raised bed or a little four by eight raised bed, wherever you have space in your yard that gets good sun. Uh, so that's exactly how I started was I built my first raised bed. It was a little four by eight raised bed. Uh, I kind of put it in the back of my property because, like I said, I'd never grown anything before. So I was like, I don't really want people to see what I'm doing. And, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't worried about like the permits or the city seeing it or anything like that. I was just like, I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know how it's going to turn out. So I kind of planted it towards the back of my property and I had one like behind my garage. I was like, I'm going to hide this from people. You know, I was like a little bit of shame. I was like, I'm this 20 year old guy, you know, like planting, you know, fruits and vegetables. I, didn't, I was like, I don't think this is really that, you know, that cool. Or I was like, I, you know, yeah, I got to have that perception. Like, what are people going to think about me when, you know, now I don't really care. Now it is cool to do yeah, that. Now it is yeah. cool. So I was like, now people are like, stop. And they're like, oh, this is great. Like, how did you do this? And I'm like, well, I just started with a little raised bed and yeah. I still have like my original raised bed I kind of kept it I don't really use it as much but it's kind of got like sentimental value of like this is where it all started yeah so I started with you know a little raised bed the next year I added uh you know I added three more four by eight raised beds and then after that that's when I started to go out to my front yard because I'm like I said I'm a regular residential lot I have some like woods on my property and the best place that I get sun is in my front yard so I don't have like trees in my front yard. It's just, you know, full sun all day. And that's, you know, the problem with most residential lawns is people have trees, you know, big trees in their backyard that shaded or like garages or sheds. And what happens is, you know, they're trying to plant these gardens in these places where they don't get full sun. Whereas most people's front yard is full sun. It's just that, you know, the front yard is yes, your curb appeal. You know, you don't think yeah. like, oh, I'm going to put a garden out there or I'm not going to put a garden out there because, you know, people are going to see it and they're going to think it's going to, you know, decrease their home value. So, but I didn't really care. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to commit to it. And like I said, my whole front yard used to be grass. And now, you know, I started in my front yard, I did do raised beds because the aesthetic. So I wanted to make it look nice. So, you know, I use cedar wood, uh, you know, I made it very presentable. I wanted to keep, you know, that that look of the neighborhood. I wanted to be, you know, I could have just tilled up the ground, but I was like, I'm going to make this aesthetically pleasing. Nice. I put a lot of time and work into the materials I used. Uh, I'm a craftsman too. So, you know, I took pride in the, you know, the raised beds that I made. Uh, but, you know, that's where it comes down to asking for you know, permission versus forgiveness would have been a good thing in that because I learned, you know, down the road, you know, these raised beds that I had, they were against a code, a building code. So I ended up having to take down two of my raised beds that were too close to the sidewalk, uh, but I'm still allowed to grow. So most municipalities, unless you're in like an HOA, uh, if you live in an HOA, you know, I would be a little bit more leery about what you do in your front yard, but you know, I'm just in a community, uh, you know, so I was, 
willing to take that risk. And like I said, they're accepting of it. It's just, you know, I know if I was in an HOA, it would, you know, totally get shut down. Yeah. So what do your neighbors think? Like, or do you have people come and try and get stuff from your yard if it's just there? Like, I, I'm just thinking of maybe like some kids or I don't know, something that like, oh, there's a bunch of produce here. Is this for, can we just, is it up for grabs? Like, or do people know this is your business? Most people know now. I mean, I've kind of got like a name in the community of people, you know, people know about me. They'll, they, you know, there's like a forum on Facebook and people talk about, you know, if there's like a swarm of bees, they're like, call Farmer Andy. Or, if, you know, <laughs> someone's looking for like ginger or something, they'll be like, try Farmer Andy. And I'm like, I don't grow that, but good try. Yeah. But I do. So like I live, my actual property is right across from elementary school. So literally my closest neighbor is a public elementary school and then a block down the street is a you know catholic uh, school so i have kids you know in the summer especially i'll have you know 50 to 100 kids walk by my place every day just you know to and from school or sometimes the school will go like to another playground so they're always walking by and usually kids are just, you know, like, what are you growing there? What's it? What do you have there? You know, some days I'll be picking carrots and they're like, oh, man, look at those carrots. And they get they get pretty, you know, enthused about it. And then sometimes they'll, you know, see some like greens and they'll, you know, be like, what is that? Is that, you know, is that those tomatoes? And I'm like, that's spinach. So I was like, you know, so it's like an education thing. I don't know. You know, most kids and I, you know, I'm guilty myself growing up. I would have never known what spinach looked like growing or lettuce, you know, I would have been the same thing. Like, are those green beans? No, that's lettuce. You know, I wouldn't have known the difference. So any chance that I get for those kind of interactions, you know, if kids stop, had kids stop and have like 10 minute conversations about, you know, like, what are you growing? What do you do with all this? And I'll, and I'll just sit there and talk to them. Yeah. I think that's so important because like you said, kids usually don't want to eat something, but I, I think it's, I think they will want to eat it if they actually see where it comes from and what it looks like. That makes it a little less scary or a little bit more interesting. So that's good that you have that chance to like teach them of this is actually what spinach is. So then when they go home and their mom's trying to give them spinach, they're going to know, oh, I saw that at Farmer Andy's yard. That's how it grows or that's what that is. Exactly. And I can't tell, I mean, one of the things that like when I first started with my raised beds in the front yard, I always planted cherry tomatoes in that bed that was right by the sidewalk. And they would kind of grow out on the, you know, out of the trellis and there's just be cherry tomatoes hanging out on the sidewalk and i always told people walking by like if it's on the sidewalk it's open for you know open for grabs yeah you know? and then i have like a little median in between the sidewalk and the street where i plant strawberries and i'm like you know i'm gonna eat them if no one else eats them but they're kind of there like they're unguarded you know that's for anybody that wants to walk by and take a strawberry or two you know yeah. and some people ask you know most people just walk by it like you know, I'm not going to take that food, but some people are like, are those strawberries down there? And I'll be like, absolutely. You can have as many as you like, you know, if there's some ripe ones, take some. Yeah. Cause that's what I want to, I just want to, when I got into this, I didn't get into it for a business. I did it because I wanted to grow food for myself. And then from there I started having excess produce. So I would just give it away. People walking by, you know, here's a tomato or two. Would you like a tomato or, you know, would you like some green beans? You know, and I would just give the produce away. And then over time, you know, people would start coming back like, can I get some more of those tomatoes? And I'm like, well, I don't really have any tomatoes right now. I've given them all away. Yeah. And I started thinking like, wow, this could be like a, a business. You know, people are coming back. They want it. Like I gave it away for free the first time and now they want more. It was so good. And that's, you know, the next year I would plant more tomato plants in the, you know, I was like, you know, if I plant more tomato plants and I could sell some tomatoes too. And it just kind of, so, you know, it kind of snowballed. Yeah. So is that how you got into the market scene? Exactly. Yep. So I started, you know, I think I was gardening for, so 2013 was my first season gardening. Then 2014, 
uh, you know, I expanded. And I think by 2015, I had enough that I was actually setting up in my, you know, I was setting up in my driveway. So I would just pop a little tent, little 10 by 10 tent in my driveway, you know, set up a little table and set out whatever extra produce I had. And I would just, you know, neighbors driving by. So I kind of live, you know, I don't really live in like a subdivision. I kind of live on like a main street of this of Sharonville. So I get so many people, especially like school. If I set up like when school was getting out, you know, people would stop and they'd buy stuff. And that's pretty much how I got started. Yeah. And which farmer's market are you at now? So now my main uh, farmer's market is Deerfield Farmer's Market. So that runs every Saturday, uh, May through October. And then I also do a CSA, which is uh, Community Supported Agriculture, where it's a subscription based where people pay at the beginning of the year, which guarantees them produce throughout the whole season. So the CSA, uh, the benefits of like a CSA would be that you are, since you're paying up front, you're kind of helping the farmers, you know, buy all their crop, you know, all their seeds, all their, you know, protection that they need for the season, irrigation. You're kind of helping that farmer get jump started in the season. So CSA members are usually like the most important customers to farmers because, you know, they're kind of help jump starting the season. Uh, and then, you know, so they're pretty much CSA is always, you know, first come. So like if there's a crop failure on the farm throughout the year, the CSA members get taken care of first because they paid, you know, back in February or March, they've paid for the whole year for their produce. So with the C or with your CSA, is that like a weekly thing? So in, let's say the summer, summer months or whatever, do they get the same produce or does it like they get to choose what's in their box? How does that work? So there's a few different models that farmers use and have been implementing over the years. Uh, the most basic CSA kind of model, which is what I've adapted, uh, just because I'm a smaller farm, uh, is pretty much it's a weekly basket of seasonal produce. So in the springtime, it's a lot of greens, you know, uh, my CSA starts in May. So it's a lot of, you know, you get the spinach, you get the baby root crops, you get the kale, you get the lettuce. Uh, then, you know, as we get into like July, you get pep, you know, the peppers are starting to ripen the tomatoes. So, you know, you start to get a few less greens and you start to get more of the fruiting crops like the tomatoes, the peppers, the eggplants, uh, cucumbers, summer squash, stuff like that. And then kind of towards the end of the season in the fall, you know, when all the fruiting crops, it starts to get too cold for them, you know, kind of transitions back and you start to see more of that green crop that you saw in the spring. You start to see the spinach back. You start to see more of the kale, more of the collards. And so it's kind of, that's why I kind of like the CSA is it kind of gets people out of their comfort zone. So, you know, they're forced to kind of try things that maybe they would have never tried. So maybe people are like, ah, I don't like radishes, but you're inevitably going to get radishes a couple times in your CSA and whether, you know, you end up, you know, loving them and starting to love them. Or if you're giving them to a neighbor, you know, it helps, you know, helps the farmer because you're giving that food away to a neighbor. Maybe that neighbor's like, oh, these radishes are so good. Where did you get these from? You know, I'd like to, you know, buy some more of these or, you know, see what else this farmer has. And it kind of helps spreads the word of the farmer. So, yeah. So let's talk about what is seasonal. Like, let's go through the season, like the kind of seasons of what it is, because as you know, I share on my Instagram seasonal foods. Yep. And also this is different in different regions, right? Right. So correct. what we have in Ohio is going to be different than what people in California are going to have seasonally. Exactly. So you mentioned some of the summer stuff, um, some of the fall. Now that we're in November, what what are those seasonal things that are going to be easier to grow here in this region? 
So now, so with winter gar, this would be more like winter farming, gardening. Uh, there's a trick to it, which, you know, you can still keep things alive, but you can't really grow things. So the trick with winter gardening or farming is that you have to plan ahead. So when I'm planning my winter, you know, what I'm going to have available in the winter, I'm planning that back at least in August. So in August, which is, you know, still midsummer, we're still picking tomatoes, peppers, you know, we're still picking all the summer crops in August. I'm planning out what am I going to have available in November, December? You know, what do I need to propagate, you know, in the greenhouse to have it ready, you know, so that I can harvest it in November, December. You know, some people think that, Oh, you know, if I plant something now, mid-November, I can come out, you know, plant it, cover it up, and it's going to grow. And in three weeks, I'm going to have a whole head of lettuce. And that's just, that's not reality. So you really have to plan ahead, uh, which is what I've learned over the years. Over the years, you know, I was planting late and I'd, you know, I'd had, get these carrots in the ground and, you know, in October and then they wouldn't grow. And, you know, I'd be like, why didn't this work? Like I, I got them in the ground. They grew a little bit. Why didn't they grow to full size carrots? And it's because the ground gets too cold and it can't actually grow. So with winter crops, you have to actually get the crops established before the ground or the weather gets too cold. Uh, but once the ground is too cold, those crops stop growing. And at that point, what you're trying to do is just keep them alive. So that's where people will utilize like what they call high tunnels, which is like a greenhouse that's not heated. Or in my case, since I don't have much greenhouse space or high tunnel space right now, I use what they call low tunnels, which is what most gardeners would use, where if you have like a little gardener or a little garden box, you can take some PVC or electrical conduit that you've bent, put it over those uh, garden beds, you know, put some kind of protective cloth over it or plastic and it kind of acts, you know, it heats up, it keeps the temperatures a little warmer in there. That way the, you know, your crops don't freeze. So they're just staying alive at that point that you shouldn't expect growth. Correct. Yep. So like most times like lettuce, when I plant it in the spring, I can cut that lettuce and then I'll actually get a regrowth on that lettuce. So it's, you know, it's what they call a cut and come again crop. So, you know, like most greens, like arugula, kale, you know, you can harvest it and it'll regrow and you'll get at least a second harvest, maybe three harvest. Whereas in the winter, you know, you're cutting that lettuce. And it's not going to regrow until maybe March or April. So you can leave it in there after it's cut, you know, leave it in there, still keep it protected. And then come March, April, you know, you're going to get a little bit head start on that. You know, everybody else is. Does that work for Swiss chard? It does Swiss chard pretty hardy. Yeah. Okay, so, I'm like, I see, see some people grow Swiss chard all year round. For me, it's like, for some reason, it always dies out. And then I just like, ah, forget about it. I'm, I'm tired of Swiss chard. But yeah. yeah, if you got a Swiss chard plant, they're pretty, their root system's pretty hardy. And like, you can cut it back. And then in the spring, you'll start to see some little leaves coming out of it. Yeah. I'm just thinking about my garden. I know I have some Swiss chard still hanging on back there. So yeah. I'm like, maybe I should chop, like cut it and protect it. So yeah, it'll come back. And Swiss chard, sometimes you don't even have to protect it. So like okay. myself, talking about seasonal crops right now, what I have growing. Uh, so my big thing, one of my big sellers is carrots. So I plant, you know, a lot of beds of carrots, you know, I planted them back at the end of August. Uh, they're established. And then what I do is I have them covered now, but I have just full grown carrots sitting in the ground. And the nice thing about uh, certain crops in the winter is they actually get sweeter. So when once the ground freezes and they get like hit with a little bit of frost, all the starches in those fruits and vegetables actually turn to sugars. So like the starches in the carrots turn to sugar. So the sweetest carrots you're ever going to get are going to be winter carrots. Uh, the same thing for spinach is another big one. Uh, whereas I got spinach outside that's established. Spinach, I don't cover. I just leave it out in the field. It can get snowed on, uh, you know, rain, hell, you know, frozen rain, freezing rain. You're going to not going to really hurt it. 
and it'll just bounce back. It's a pretty hardy winter crop. So carrots are one of my favorites to grow. Spinach, uh, curly kale is another good one. It's very hardy. Uh, like I said, I don't cover the curly kale. You can go out there, you know, shake snow off of it, harvest some leaves, you know, take it inside, eat it. Uh, collards is another good one. And then, you know, any of your other greens like arugula, uh, if you like baby kale, you know, lettuce, you know, if you cover them, you know, you can pretty much harvest off of them all, all winter if you have enough. Yeah. So then when do you plant things for like the spring season? So spring season, like I'm already planning out my spring season. So people are like, what do farmers do in the winter? And it's like the farmers are planning for the next, once the, once the current season ends, farmers right away. So like I start to order seeds, November, December is what I'm looking at. You know, what crops am I going to grow next year? How much seed do I need for the next season? And, you know, we're getting our seed orders in, you know, November, December, January. So that's usually the first thing on the farmer's list is, you know, they look at their last year's crop crops, you know, how many, how much seed did they use? You know, are they going to keep the same crops? Are they going to add a couple new crops to grow? Um, you know, kind of just based on how they sell, how they grow, you know, we're always looking for the best things that we can offer our customers. So I'm kind of looking back at like my records of this year of like what sold the most, like how many green beans did I sell? You know, I ordered five pounds of green beans last year. Maybe this year I'm going to order 10 pounds of green beans. So I'm just getting this you know, all these orders in and I order seeds from, you know, multiple different companies, you know, that produce seeds that are tried and true, you know, that I've learned about through different farmers. And that's, you know, one thing, you know, you go to a farmer's market, I get asked that question a lot, like, where do you get your seeds from? And that's the one question you could ask your farmers is like, where do you, you know, where do you supply your, you know, get your seeds from? That's one, you know, you can say, do you get organic seeds? You know, you don't have to be if you're certified organic, you don't have to use all organic seeds. You know, you can, there's a certain ratio that you can use a conventional seed. So let's, so I want to get into that before. Can you talk about what the, I guess the yearly schedule looks like for a farmer? Cause you're right. When the farmer's markets end, I think people think, oh, like they're just sitting around all winter and right. like, that's not true. So what <laughs> does that look like? Cause we know farmer's markets are really busy in the summer, right? Like we see that up until like fall, like spring to fall. But then like what is what does that look like when the when the market ends? Cause I know your work does not end. Right. So some people do offer, you know, winter produce. I you know, like I said, I still have some things growing. Uh so like a winter farmers market or some people do like a winter CSA. So it's the same, same model as maybe a few less weeks during the winter. And you know, you're gonna get more storage crops like potatoes and winter squash, you know, more of the things that are, you know, can store for a few months, garlic, uh, you know, root crops that can, you know, literally just store in a refrigerator for months and months without going bad. Uh, so in the winter, you know, after markets are over, you know, markets usually end of October. There's usually, you know, check your local farmer's market because most farmer's market have some kind of winter market after the regular season ends. So, you know, if you're going to a market, you know, the regular season probably going to end in September, October. But, you know, check because there's going to be a market around you if it's not your market that you go to that's going to have extended markets, you know, at least usually up through Thanksgiving, if not through the new year. So, and then, like I said, some people, some farmers will offer a winter CSA where maybe it's a, every other week you pick up a basket or maybe once a month you're picking up a basket of produce. Uh, but for most farmers in the winter, if they're not doing, you know, the markets or the CSA, which doesn't take up as much time, you know, in the winter as it does during the summer, uh, most farmers are, you know, like I said, first off, they're looking at their seeds or ordering their seeds, which 
people are like, well, you just flip through a catalog and write what you want. It's like, that's, and no, it's, it, it's like a two week process. You go through, you write your order up, you go back, double check, you know, all these seed, you know, I usually tell gardeners like, just get a, you know, go on to Johnny's or Fedco and order like a seed catalog and just go through the seed catalog and you'll be surprised. You know, when you got 250 varieties of tomatoes, you know, it's like, how do I pick 15 varieties that I want to grow? Wow. You know, yeah. so people think like, oh, I'm just getting, you know, these these red slicers at market. And it's like, no, there's like 250 varieties of tomatoes, you know, that one company will offer. And there's there's hundreds more out there. So, you know, you got to figure out which varieties you want to grow. So every year, you know, I'm growing pretty much the tried and true varieties that I've grown for years. But I always like to, you know, keep things exciting and add a different, you know, variety of tomato that I've never grown that maybe a customer's asked me, like, do you have a green zebra tomato? And I'm like, yeah, green zebra. I've never grown it. I've seen people that have it. And I'll be like, all right, I'm going to try green zebra tomatoes this year. Yeah. One thing I love that you do is the chaga beets. Yeah, chaga. I, I had never seen those until you, until you, yep. and they're beautiful and they're fun to eat and they're really delicious too. I like them better than the regular ones. Yeah. So but... most people, you know, they only see that standard red beet and then, you know, sometimes you'll see a golden beet in the grocery store, but this chaga is like, I've never, I never saw them anywhere. And then I was watching a YouTube video of another, you know, urban farmer who was growing beets and he was like, you know, these beets sell really well for me. So one year I tried them and. You know, there's there's always a learning curve when you have like a new product like that where people have never seen it. You know, people are like, well, what's the difference between that red beet and the chaga beet? And you got to go on like, what's the taste difference? What's the, you know, how's it look? How's, is it cooked different? It's like, it's just a beet, y'all. It, <laughs> it cooks the same way. It's just a different color. <laughs> it may have like a slightly different flavor, but it's, it still comes from the earth. It's still pretty earthy like beets are, but it's just cool to have that, that variety. And that's, you know, what I've learned at the market is, you know, different varieties, you know, I do my microgreens, I could just, you know, do the straight like sunflower pea microgreens, but then I put them in a mix and people are like, oh, that mix is really good. So it's just, you know, finding different variations of, you know, to be able to offer the customer. Yeah. And so then also in the winter, you're taking care of your land, I'm assuming, Correct. right? Yeah. Okay. So, so at the end of the season, so the way that I winterize, so I'll, you know, a lot of farmers, whether they'll, you know, cover cropping or covering their beds. So everything that I do is in a bed system. So traditional farmers that have acres and acres, whereas I'm an urban farm. So everything that I'm producing is on less than a half an acre of land. Whereas some farmers, you know, they have hundreds of acres or, you know, 50 to 100 acres, which is a quite a bit of land. And they're actually using, you know, like tractors, whereas I'm using, I'm a no-till farm, which means that I'm not using like big tractors and tilling up the land. Uh, I'm a no-till, so I'm just cultivating, you know, the top inch or two of the soil. I'm using a broad fork, so everything's a lot more... I have a, I feel like I have more of a connection to the earth. So I feel like I'm taking care of the soil a little better. I'm not disturbing the microbiology in the soil by tilling it multiple times a year. Uh, it also helps with weeds by being a no-till. So by me, so when I say I'm in a bed system, I'm not just planting a row of green beans. I have my, all my uh, plots are broken down into 30 inch beds. So my beds are 30 inch, 30 inches wide by 50 feet long. So I try to keep everything consistent. And then my walkways are anywhere from 16 to 18 inches wide. So the beds are, like I said, all 30 inches wide. So I know, you know, if I'm planting arugula, I can plant nine rows of arugula in a 30 inch bed. If I'm planting tomatoes, I plant one row of tomatoes. They're all spaced 18 inches apart. So there's all different spacings, uh, you know, based on this 30 inch, you know, bed system, which it's not something that I came up with. It's something that I've pretty much just copied off of farmers. You know, this whole system has been set up. I've just kind of implemented into my situation. 
but 30 inch beds. So in the winter, what I'll do is if I'm not cover cropping my bed, so cover cropping is when you take out, you know, any produce that you're growing during the main season, you take all that out. And instead of just having bare soil exposed all winter, which, you know, is exposed to the elements. So you just have bare, bare soil. You don't have any kind of root structure or anything. What are the benefits of a cover crop and it pretty much acts as what they call a green manure. So, you know, it's kind of like a compost that's not really composted yet. So you're you're laying down like a wheat or a rye or, you know, some kind of crop that'll grow. You'll get it established. It won't really die off in the winter, but come springtime, you know, you have this crop that's in the beds. It's fully grown. You know, it's whether it's peas, wheat, rye, like I said, you have this root structure, which the worms and the insects, you know, like it in the soil. They got something to eat off of and feed off of in the winter. And then come springtime, you chop down that cover crop. So you would just take it, you know, take a weed whacker or whatever, llama or run over it. And then you would actually cultivate that into the soil. So it's what they call green manure. So, you know, I use a lot of compost, but this cover cropping is really beneficial to the soil because it keeps that root structure so that in the winter, your soil is just not bare. You have that root structure so that the soil won't be getting washed away by the rain. You're giving the worms and the insects something to eat in the soil. And then in the spring, when you chop it down, all that greenery that, you know, leaves or whatever greenery you're growing, that all goes right back into the soil and it just helps build the soil over time. So that's one option. The other option that I do in the winter is what I call, they call solarizing. So I'll cover all my beds with what they call uh, silage tarps. So once I crop out my last crop of the season, all my beds will get covered. And what that does is it kind of acts as a cover crop without the actual root structure. And then I don't get that green manure in the spring. So really it's all just doing is it's covering the soil so that it's not exposed to the elements. Uh, you know, I'm not washing, you know, my topsoil won't get washed away if we have a heavy rain or, you know, the snow, once it melts, you know, my soil is going to kind of stay intact. And then the other thing that it does is it gives me a jump start on the next season because by covering it with a black tarp, what happens is the soil actually warms up quicker in the springtime. So I can get a jump start on the season. So in the springtime, you know, I'll pull the tarp off. And if that ground's not frozen, you know, I can go ahead and start planting. And another advantage is, you know, a lot of times, you, you know, we get spring showers. So, you know, we get a lot of rain in the spring. So if your beds are uncovered, one thing that'll happen to a lot of traditional farmers is they won't be able to actually get their machinery out into the field in order to cultivate or till if they're tilling, because the, the soil is so wet that if they take their tractor out there, you know, it's just going to be really clumpy or their tractor may get stunk, stuck. Whereas, you know, when I'm using you know, this, this method that I'm talking about using a silage tarp or some kind of tarp to cover your beds, you know, I don't have that problem. If it rains, I can go out the next day, uncover it. And my beds are, you know, they're pretty dry or they have whatever moisture content that you had when I covered them up. So that is like, that is so much work to think about. So again, it's like, you think farmers are just not really, they don't have much to do in the winter, but this is a lot of work. Oh yeah. And I also love how you explained how you want to keep the integrity of the soil, right? right? So, That's a big thing is there's a microbiome yep. in the soil that we have to respect. And like the health of that is going to determine the health of the actual produce, right? Exactly. Which then is going to impact our health. Yep. So we kind of talked a little bit about the organic conventional, you started to talk about it, but let's get into that because I think there's misconceptions of like, what is organic farming? What does that mean? Are there pesticides used? And just because someone doesn't have a USDA organic label doesn't mean that they're not doing organic practices. Because right. I don't know if this is correct, but I heard that it's like 40 grand to get that 
stamp. Is that right? Like it's, how expensive is it to get USDA it's, organic? It's not that expensive. So the thing with organic <laughs> is it's more of a time commitment. So the process to get certified organic, I believe I haven't looked into it. So everything, I know a little bit about it, but I don't know the exact process just because the, my situation now, like the way that I rent land and my, the way my property is, it's not worth it for me to get certified. But I know through talking to other farmers, the process and my mentors, they're certified organic. So I, certified organic. So I kind of know, you know, the process that they've gone through. Uh, so the thing with organic, it tells you what you can't do. It doesn't tell you what you should do. So they're going to tell you, you know, what products you can't use, but they're never going to tell you really like you should do this to add back into the soil. So Organic is kind of, it's almost like an old term now, whereas now the new thing is what they call like regenerative. Yes. So it's actually taking care of the soil, building up that soil, you know, not using the the harmful products, which, you know, they say you can't use an organic, but like I said, organic isn't telling you that, you know, you should be putting this much compost onto your beds every year, or you should be, you know, using these cover crops. Uh, you know, you should be rotating these crops, you know, so it's, it's so not, is, is that regenerative farming? What you're just talking about now yeah, so is giving, putting back into the soil, correct. Building I've up the soil. I've seen a lot of that in terms of like, like, beef right or like regenerative farm in terms of like cattle and all of that but you're also saying this applies to produce as well exactly and that's what you try to be you try to do in your farming yeah so the guy that really made that kind of famous would be a guy named joel salatin so he's a you know he grows fruits and vegetables but he also has livestock and it's all about you know his regenerative practices is you know all of his animals are free range so they're out there in the fields and then he's rotating those animals so that you know if the animals are in one plot for a certain amount of time a year, then they're going to get moved. And then that plot they they were in, you know, they fertilized through their manure and then you're growing some kind of fruit or vegetable, you know, so you don't have to actually use any kind of external, you know, fertilization. You're just, you're relying on those animals and it kind of almost becomes like a closed loop system where those animals are fertilizing a certain section of land. People do the same thing with like chickens and stuff where that manure, you know, they'll, they'll eat all the grass, they'll, they'll poop it all out. Uh, you know, that'll fertilize the ground. And then, you know, people come in once that's, once that's composted into the ground, they'll be growing some kind of crop. They'll move those animals to another section. They'll eat all the grass in that section, you know, fertilize it. And it's kind of just a closed loop, closed loop system. So they're not actually putting all these products onto the ground to keep it fertilized. Whereas, you know, when you look at these monocroppers every year, you know, they're just spraying some kind of fertilizer, or, you know, spreading some kind of fertilizer onto the ground to put back into the soil so that they can grow that same crop again. And it's, you know, eventually that's, you know, it's just going to stop working. Whereas the regenerative, you know, it's a more, way more, you know, it's going to be another word would be sustainable. So, you know, I, I like to say I'm a sustainable urban farm, you know, so that I'm not using all these products, you know, I'm using these methods of like cover cropping and crop rotation and composting, you know, and all those things to help build my soil. And that's the biggest thing for me is that the soil health. Okay. So it's, so it really comes down to the soil health. And then also in terms of like things that get sprayed on, on crops, right. And produce. So that's going to be different if you're doing organic versus not, or regenerative or sustainable farming. Correct. So there is, I mean, there is a lot of, you know, bio, what they call bio insecticides. So organic pesticides that are certified organic, you know, they're less harmful to the environment. 
uh, which, you know, I keep on hand because, you know, the crops, there's, it's inevitable that if you got kale, you're going to get some kind of worm or, you know, flea beetle or something eating them. Uh, but what I try to do is I use a method called insect netting. So all of my crops that I know that are susceptible to being eaten by, you know, cabbage worms or flea beetles. So a lot of my greens, so like my kales, my arugulas, my lettuce, all these things that I know, you know, I've grown in the past and haven't covered, they get eaten up eventually without spraying them. Uh, now what I do is when I plant something, direct seed it or transplant it, if I know that it's susceptible to some kind of insect, what I'll do is I'll put wire hoops over my beds and then cover it with insect netting. And what insect netting is, it's a really fine mesh that protects the plant so that these insects, you know, they have a harder time getting in. Inevitably, you know, you got to take the cover off to harvest and you got to put it back on. And sometimes you got to take it off to weed. So it's not 100% foolproof. So that's why I keep some bioinsecticides on hand. You know, things get out of hand and I do get an infestation. Uh, but mo most of my stuff, you know, I maybe spray once or twice a year if I have, you know, something that's I can't control. Uh, but for the most part, by covering all my beds uh, with insect netting, you know, it, it keeps most of my produce, you know, buck free. You know, it's one thing that people will compliment me on a lot is that, you know, my greens don't have holes in them. They're like, how did you get this kale so perfect? And it's like, there's a lot of time. So, yeah. you know, spraying, that spraying is, you know, so it's not like spraying is easier, you know, spraying, you still gotta, you know, you gotta pay the money for the sprays, which is not cheap. You have to mix it up in your mixer. You have to take the time, spray it, you know, and then you got to be on like a spray schedule when you're using those sprays, you know, every other week and you kind of got to switch out your sprays. You can't use the same spray every week because they're going to, you know, those insects will get used to it. Uh, whereas, you know, with the netting, you know, after I plant, I'm putting the hoops over the beds and I'm putting the netting on the beds. And then when I'm harvesting, I got to take the netting off. So it kind of takes the same amount of time, but I just like knowing that I'm not spraying because, you know, like I said, when I got into this, it was all about health and having the most nutrient dense food and not that spraying really compromises that it just makes me feel better. And that's, you know, that's the way I want to eat. So that's the way I want to be able to feed, you know, feed other people in the community. Yeah. So Essentially, what we're saying is that just because someone isn't uh, USDA organic doesn't mean that they're not using organic practices or right. using regenerative practices, right? Correct. So how do you, so I'm thinking of myself standing in line at the farmer's market. How do you ask those questions to a farmer? Because I also am like, would this be not insulting, but like, I don't want to seem like I'm a know-it-all, but I'm just curious, like, what do you say? What are your practices? Like, how do you go about asking someone what they do? And if they do regenerative farming or sustainable farming, or if they use sprays and if they are um, organic or not, like, how do you, what's, how do you approach someone like that? I think that's, I mean, most people are fearful, but I mean, most people will be like, are you, you know, most the comment, the question I get most about organic is, are you certified organic? And then my, my first response is I'm not certified organic, but everything is grown organically. And then once that happens, you know, once I tell people that they're like, all right. And if they want more information, I'll go into it. I'll, you know, the thing I would watch out for when you ask, you know, a farmer if they're organic and they say, well, you know, we're not certified organic, but we grow everything organically. That's fine. And then look at the produce, kind of look at it. You know, if they have, you know, one thing like I've seen people with peaches at market and, you know, peaches are kind of hard to grow and get these perfect, you know, round peaches, all consistent size with no holes in it. Like you would see at the grocery store. Like it's just, that's not the way most peaches look when they're, you know, grown by a, you know, someone, a home gardener or, you know, a small time farmer. So after, you know, I like when I started out, you know, that's how I got started with shopping at farmer's markets. And I would, I was the same in the same situation. I'd ask these farmers like, you know, are you guys certified organic or what kind of growing methods do you use? 
So as a customer, you kind of have to have some of that knowledge going into it because you don't want to be new, you know, duped by you know a farmer there because you know most farmers are very loyal and they're very trustworthy. But you know every now and then you're going to get a bad apple, mm-hmm. uh, so you just got to know how to pick those out. But I always say if a farmer's not willing to be transparent about the way they grow, the products they use. You know, I'll tell people, if you want to drive by my property, feel free to drive by it. I mean, I used to give tours, but, you know, with my schedule getting so busy, it's hard to, like, take that time during the main season. But I'll tell people, you know, they'll ask, like, so how do you fertilize your land? I'll tell them, you know, I put compost on it. I'll tell them where I get my compost. If I use, like, a fertilizer, like a pelletit manure or compost, I'll tell them the exact product that I use. Uh, Like, I use a lot of worm castings. I use a product called azomite rock dust. So I'll be absolutely transparent about, you know, I use this product, this product, I use this much of the product, the insect netting, you know, people are like, how do you get, you know, your stuff looks like you buy it and resell it. You know, you looks like you buy it from a wholesaler and resell it. I'm like, drive by my property. You'll see all my beds covered with this insect netting. That's how I do it. It's like, you know, so sometimes even as a farmer, we feel like we're being like, we're like under attack, like all oh, these people just think we're like resellers because that is a big thing you get to watch out for is, you know, there's these produce auctions that people, some farmers will go to, they'll buy stuff, you know, so it's grown by someone, an individual, usually the Amish, they have these, you know, they grow and then they have these auctions. And what happened is people from the city will go out to these auctions, they'll buy, you know, strawberries, apples, you know, broccoli, and then they'll bring it back to the city. You know, they got it for a dollar a pound at the auction. They're going to come back to the city and sell it at market for $3 a pound. So that's, that's one that even I've been, you know, when I first started going to markets, you know, I'd see, you know, people had cantaloupe in June, which is really early for like cantaloupe. So, you know, not only like knowing your seasons, you know, if people have tomatoes in May, it's like, all right, if you got tomatoes in May, that means you either got a heated greenhouse, which cost a lot of money to produce those tomatoes, or they're buying them from, a, you know, someone that's growing them with the heated greenhouse, getting them at a cheap price, you know, buying them at an auction and then bring them in and selling them as their own. And while they may grow some tomatoes, those aren't their tomatoes that they're growing. So that's that's another one, you know, I've been duped before and I learned years down the road that, oh, that farmer, they buy from auction and they resell a lot of stuff. They do grow some stuff, but there is farmers that do that. So it's really, it, it, it really, it, it's, it kind of sucks because, yeah. you know, as a market manager, one of the other things, one of my responsibilities is I'm supposed to go out to, you know, the farmers that are vending at my market I'm supposed to be going out to their farm, you know, just doing a farm check to make sure that what they're bringing to market, they're actually growing on their property, that they're not buying it somewhere somewhere else and reselling it. That makes sense. So how do you, what's the best resource for someone to know what's seasonal besides my Instagram page? <laughs> but like, how would someone know? So when they're, if they're going to the market for the first time, yep. how are they going to know like, oh, it's too early to have cantaloupe or those tomatoes are way too early. How do you know that? What's a good resource for someone to look up? Really just, I would almost say like going to a farmer's market, you know, just, you know, it wasn't, I probably learned seasons like my second year, you know, I'd go into a farmer's market every week. That's probably when I learned like, all right, tomatoes are, you know, grown from this time to this time of the year. And then I learned, you know, that year two, I was like, well, that vendor always has tomatoes like two weeks earlier or two months earlier than everybody else. Like, all right, what's going on? And then you can ask, you know, if there's a farmer at a market that has those tomatoes, you could go down the, 
you know, down to the end of the market and ask one of the other farmers, like, so when are you guys going to have tomatoes? And just kind of asking the different farmers, like, you know, when do you, when do you expect to have tomatoes? How long do you expect to have tomatoes till? And then, you know, maybe they'll say, well, that farmer, you know, they got a heated greenhouse so they can produce tomatoes earlier. So some people get a jump start on things. Uh, you know, same thing with like green beans, which are more of like a summer crop. You know, like this year I had, I think I had green beans like two weeks before everybody else. And it's just, I planted green beans earlier than everybody else. Yeah. So there's certain things, you know, just kind of asking the farmers that you're buying from, you know, like, when do you expect to have beets? And that's kind of when you learn. And I did the same thing when I got started, I would ask the farmers like, so when do you plant spinach? You know, and they'll be like, why, well, you know, I plant my spinach in April. And as a gardener, I was like, man, I didn't think I could plant spinach until May when really I learned I can plant in a month and a half earlier and then get it, you know, get that crop earlier. Yeah. I think so this, this whole conversation is blowing my mind. Like I'm just like so appreciative of all this information because I've been coming to you for maybe a few years now and I don't, I don't even know all of this information. So this is helpful. And also I remember going to the farmer's market, you know, by myself for the first couple of times and you do feel kind of lost because you're like, okay, I know this is most likely healthier for me. So I'm glad I'm here. This is step one, but step two is some of this produce I've never bought before. So what do I do with it? Because you're going to have things that, you know, Whole Foods or Kroger might have, but like I usually skip over because I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. But then I feel more inclined to get it because I'm like, this is someone local. This is grown really close. And we know that food is going to be much better for you. The the less it has to travel to you. So, you know, I was more inclined to to try new things. So this is really helpful for someone who maybe doesn't feel as comfortable at a farmer's market. And I also love that you talked about the regenerative farming, because that's kind of a buzz thing now too. I think there's like a documentary and there's like a book about it, but I think it was helpful that you explained that. And also just, you you said monocropping. So can you explain what that is compared to what you do? Yeah. So monocropping would be, you know, people that have hundreds and hundreds of acres and most of those crops that the thing that I don't agree with is most of those monocrop farms. So not only are they depleting the soil by planting that same crop over and over, it's usually corn and wheat. So uh, corn, wheat, and soy is, you know, why, so why is that bad for the soil? Explain that. Because, you know, so with the soil, so when you're planting different crops, so different crops draw different nutrients from the ground in order to grow. So like carrots are going to use different nutrients than say lettuce is going to use. So if I'm just, you know, throughout the year, if I'm planting carrots in the same bed four times, so let's say I plant a row of carrots, I harvest those and then go right back into that same bed and plant carrots again, and then plant carrots in that same bed all year round. By the end of that year, that bed is going to be depleted of the nutrients that took to grow those carrots. Whereas what I do is I incorporate what they call uh, crop rotation. So most farmers, you know, whether they're organic or not, just for the health of the soil is what they do is they call it co- uh, crop rotation. So they'll always be mixing the crops that they're growing in those certain rows or different beds or plots, you know, depending on how they break down their, their land. Uh, so my beds are never planted with the same crop you know, simultaneously. So if I'm planting like beets in a bed, once those beets are harvested, I'm going to go ahead and plant some kind of greenery. So maybe it'll go like beets, arugula, carrots, green beans, or something, you know, that's a kind of example. I'm never going to plant beets and then radishes and then beets and then carrots because those are all root crops. So they're using some of the same nutrients to grow. Whereas when you're crop rotating, you know, like beans are going to add nitrogen into the soil. So they're actually adding into the soil. And then you go ahead and plant lettuce after that, you know, that lettuce is using some of the nutrients that the beans put into the soil in order to grow that lettuce. 
So by crop rotating and then, you know, certain things like, you know, there's also what they call companion planting. So, you know, one, the big one is like the three sisters where people plant like a squash, a bean and corn, where the squash is kind of like a ground cover. The corn grows up and then the bean kind of grows up the corn and you, you know, so home gardeners, that's a big one. A lot of people try because all those plants work together. They're beneficial in the nutrients that they provide to each other. You know, the beans kind of trellis off the corn so you can, you know, fit a lot more in a small amount of space without not, without compromise, without compromising the soil health. And that's amazing that you can do that with like livestock and produce. Right. Like that's, that's mind blowing actually that you use the manure from livestock to be in the, to then grow produce and then you just continue rotating. So basically, so I guess this is where my mind is going. So the monocrop cropping will destroy some of that soil the land right so then it basically becomes what you you can't use it anymore like why is this better for the environment in that way it's not that you can't really use it anymore it's that you're putting a lot more products onto that so you're using a lot more fertilizer which usually isn't like a manure or organic fertilizer usually some kind of synthetic fertilizer that they're putting back onto the ground and also by another beneficial thing that i didn't mention i kind of just focused on the soil health but by planting that same crop uh, usually what will happen is, you know, if I'm planting kale in the same spot, you know, multiple times a year, you know, I'm going to get the insects from that kale. And then those insects will just, you know, they're there. So those insects, once I plant another row of kale, those insects are going to be right on it again. So it also helps with like the insect pressure by crop rotating, because, you know, maybe if I'm planting carrots, you know, the same thing that's going to eat my lettuce is not going to eat my carrots. So if I'm planting lettuce and then pulling that out and planting carrots, you know, let's say maybe I had aphids or some kind of, you know, insect on my lettuce that was eating it, they're not going to eat my carrots. So if I was just, just to plant that same crop over and over again, the insect pressure is going to be a lot, you know, a lot stronger. And I'm going to have to fight those insects off. I'm going to have to use a lot more spray, whereas crop rotating, you know, you, you kind of ease that insect pressure a little bit, you know, yeah. a little bit more. That makes so much sense. And now I see why this is becoming more popular and more widely accepted. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you can, I can fit so much more. I mean, motto cropping, you know, they, they do rows, they fit quite a bit of corn and, you know, weed or soy or whatever they do. But like I said, with the insect pressure, you know, if they're growing that same crop over and over again, you know, they may have to spray more insecticides on those crops to keep them, you know, from getting eating, eaten because, you know, those insects know that, oh, the corn, I can come here every year, this corn, they're just growing corn, corn, corn. So maybe that corn, they have to keep spraying. And then, you know, the problem with that is if they keep spraying that same, you know, pesticide or whatever they're spraying, those insects are going to get resilient to that, you know, pesticide. And then that's where we, you know, we have this problem with, you know, Roundup and all these other pesticides that these plants are just, or these insects are becoming resilient to it because they're like, oh, you know, we're used to this now. Yeah. And then, you know, having these, the produce that is sprayed with pesticides, then that can then trickle down into other parts. Like, you know, either I've heard like, yeah, like into the water system and all of that. So that, so basically regenerative farming also reduces the use for that. Yep. So, okay. Yeah. So, so so I, you know, my, we want to talk like irrigation, you know, the irrigation is less. So, you know, I'm not irrigating quite as much. My water is, is clean. You know, the runoff from my water is clean. It's all nutrient dense. Yeah. Wow. So this can be, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed because I'm thinking (laughs) my little baby garden. So again, this is, he's been doing this for years, right? So like we, like we have to remember that this is something that you learned. This is also your full-time business. So this makes sense for you to put so much more care and thoughtfulness and research into this. But I do want to ask if someone wants to start a garden, where do they start? I always say 
before you even start a gardening, think about what's going to go into the garden. So I always tell people, you know, even if you don't plan on planting a garden this year, start composting. It's something that everybody can do at their house. Save your, you know, produce scraps, your, you know, whatever lettuce went bad or whatever celery, or if you get some carrots, you know, that went bad, uh, even eggshells, your coffee grounds, save all that, you know, throughout the day or throughout the week in a little bucket in your kitchen, find somewhere in your yard. If you have a big yard, you can just start a pile. You don't even need any kind of special, you know, garbage can or tumbler or anything. Or, you know, if you want it to be a little fancier, you know, get yourself like a tumble, you know, a tumbling composter where when you put the compost in, you can turn it. Uh, yeah, that's what I had. I had to get that because I live in an HOA. Okay, so yeah, that yeah. was like so, the only way to get around it is yeah. they wouldn't kick me out if I had a tumbler. Yeah. So, so and tumblers are nice because they're easy. You know, I, when I started composting, I started with a little trash can I drilled holes into and I, you know, I had to take a pitchfork and turn it and it was, it was hard to do and I didn't want to do it. So I didn't get that good a quality compost. And then once I got like a tumbling composter, which you can, you know, you can get off of Amazon or big box stores or even your local hardware store. Uh, it's a lot easier to actually turn it. So so you put it in, you kind of give it a spin each time you take your compost out. And, you know, by the end of the season, you have this, you know, really good nutrient dense, which is going to be probably the best nutrients you're going to have in your garden. Uh, like I usually say that the compost that you produce at home is going to be any better. It's going to be better than any compost you can buy, you know, from any kind of other source. So that's where I always tell people to start is. You know, even if you're like, I want to start a garden next year, it's like, well, just don't talk about it. Start collecting your food scraps. Maybe you have a neighbor, they throw out all their food scraps. And it just not only does it, you know, take away from the landfill, you're not throwing all that produce into the landfill, but it's actually going back, building soil, which is, you know, what it's all about is building that soil health, you know, so you start composting by the time you start your garden next summer, you know, you're going to have this, you know, some compost that you actually produced. And it's just a good feeling to know I took all those scraps that would have gone to the landfill and now they're actually actually feeding the food that I'm growing. Yeah. So, you know, that's, Again, it's that's that the life first cycle. step. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's where I always tell people to start is, you know, start with the composting. Uh, the next thing is to kind of look at your yard throughout the year. Look at the sun cycle. Look where you're getting shade. Uh, that was the biggest mistake I start, you know, when I started out, I planned my garden in the winter. I, you know, I went plant-based and it was in the summer. And then when I was starting to look at gardening, it was in the dead of winter and the, you know, the sun rises and sets, it's lower in the sky in the winter. And I didn't really account for that. So when I started my garden in the summer, you know, I wasn't getting full sun and I realized, okay, when the, when, you know, when it comes springtime, there's a lot more foliage on the trees. So it covers up a lot more. The sun's at a different spot in the sky. So I always tell people kind of monitor your property. Look at where the, you know, the sun is. Look at your your trees, you know, bushes, your, you know, your structures, your house, your garage, shed, anything else. And kind of just look and see what gets the most sun if you're trying to grow those crops that, you know, take a lot of sun. You're going to need to position your garden plot. Yeah. You know, somewhere on your property where you get a lot of sun and then you kind of got to decide, you know, if you're going to do raised beds, which are beneficial because, you know, if you have poor soil on your property, uh, benefits of a raised bed is, you know, you can put that box on top of your existing soil and then you get to fill that box with, you know, soil that you hopefully know is nutrient dense. Uh, so instead of like trying to build up that soil, you're actually just starting brand new with nice nutrient dense, you know, loose soil, uh, you know, so there's a book called Square Foot Gardening, which is a good resource that I found when I was starting out by Mel Bartholomew. And it's it goes over, you know, like the kind of soil mixture you want to put into your raised bed. So it's like third compost, a third peat moss and a third vermiculite. So the compost is kind of the nutrients in the beds. The peat moss kind of keeps that soil from being compact over the years. And then the vermiculite 
is like a water retainer so that when you water your beds, you know, they're not going to dry out in, you know, four hours that vermiculite kind of holds that moisture. So, and then he talks about, you know, you don't just want to get one source of compost. You want to try to get three or four different sources of compost because some compost is just decomposed leaves. Some compost is, you know, more plant-based where it's a lot more, you know, your produce scraps. And then some compost is a manure based. So it's a good to get a mix of all those different compost into your bed so that you're getting that, you know, diversity of nutrients into your, you know, bed. And then that diversity transfers into the plants. Yeah. So then that's a lot. I'm like, thinking, I'm thinking like, okay, I got to check on my compost. Actually. I haven't done that in a while, but that's really good advice is start with the compost. Cause yeah. you've talked a lot about the importance of soil. Right. So let's make sure that you yourself have good soil at home. Exactly. So what are some easy what are some easy um, like vegetables to grow, especially in this area? Like if someone's very new starting, what would you do? I'd always, I always recommend people kind of look at what, you know, when I first started out, I planted all that kale because I was eating a bunch of kale. So I always tell people, you know, some, maybe you don't eat kale. Don't grow kale if you don't eat kale, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people are like, well, I want to grow. And it's like, are you really going to eat it? Like maybe you will eat it after you grow it. You know, maybe if you're growing it yourself, you maybe you will try it. But I always tell people like, what do you like to eat? You know, what do you go to the grocery store and buy the most of? Maybe it's lettuce, maybe it's spinach. So I always tell people, you know, just look at what you buy. Don't grow stuff because you're like, oh, that'd be cool to grow. But but then you grow and you're never going to eat it. So try to grow like what you're going to eat. Uh, you know, maybe go to the grocery store and if you're at a limited space, you know, maybe look at the prices of stuff too. So maybe you buy lettuce every week and lettuce is, you know, six, $7 a pound. You're like, all right, well, that's going to save me the most money. Whereas green beans, you know, they're a dollar a pound or $2 a pound. So you're not going to save as much money. You know, so maybe start with those higher value crops like lettuce. Uh, greens are pretty easy to grow. Uh, you know, most greens, you know, they're a lot shorter days to maturity. So you're not going to like tomatoes, you're going to plant and it's going to take a hundred days until you actually see any kind of results from those plants. Whereas lettuce, you know, you can plant it and, you know, 50, 60 days later, later you're eating that lettuce. Are and you then, talking about from seed? Yeah, from okay. seed. Yep. So for days, you know, DTM days to maturity would be from the time you actually plant that seed to the time you can actually harvest it. Okay. So a lot of my crops that I grow are what they call quick growing crops. So they have a 60 days or less from seed to uh, maturity. So that way I can turn over my bed. So, you know, that's another misconception is people, you know, they get all gun ho in the springtime. They, they're like, I'm going to plant this, plant this, plant this. And they plant green beans, they plant lettuce, they plant some tomatoes and they plant some peppers. And then that's all they plant for the year. They just, you know, they harvest the lettuce. Once that's done, it's gone. And they, you know, the tomatoes pretty much produce all year, but there's certain crops that, you know, that lettuce, you pull that lettuce out after two months, you got that empty space and there's still, you know, three quarters or half of the season left. You can plant another crop in there. So that's another thing, you know, most of my beds that I plant with these quick growing crops, most of my beds are getting four different crops a year. Okay. Whereas like my beds that have tomatoes in it, I'm planting tomatoes. And then sometimes I'm planting a winter crop. So I call those like like bi-rotational beds where, you know, I'll get a long crop of tomatoes in and then maybe I'll get like a, you know, a green or a root crop in after the tomatoes. Okay. If someone has, if someone doesn't want to start with like the soil and all that, can you grow things in containers? Like, is that a thing? What are, what are vegetables that you could grow in containers? Yeah. And container growth, you know, a lot of, you know, I run into a lot of customers are like, I live in an apartment or I live in a condo or, you know, even an HOA where mm -hmm. you can't have, you know, maybe you can have a small garden box in your HOA, but maybe you just have a patio where you, you know, you're not allowed to have in, you know, a garden bed in your yard. Uh, containers are good because you can keep them on your patio or your porch or whatever. 
And most crops that, you know, you can grow in the ground, you can grow in a container. It comes down, it's pretty much really, containers just a small raised bed is the way I look at it. Uh, the big thing with containers that I see a lot of mistakes is people have too small of a container for the, you know, the crop that they're growing. So like tomatoes, you know, you wouldn't want to put tomatoes in a one gallon pot. You know, like when I did tomatoes, I've done, you know, container gardening too. Uh, tomatoes, I always like to have like a five gallon bucket per, you know, so one tomato plant per five gallon bucket. Okay. And that way you give that tomato plant enough, you know, it's got enough nutrients. It's got enough space for that root structure. Whereas if you're doing something like lettuce, uh, you know, lettuce, the root structure doesn't go down any more than, you know, four to six inches. So if you have a small little one gallon pot, you know, you can probably fit two or three heads of lettuce in that pot. So it really comes down to first off, make sure you have the right container size for the crop you want to put in there, uh, making sure that you're filling it with, you know, good soil. So, you know, you can get potting mix like miracle Grow at the store. Uh, you know, that's the easier route. If you really want to go all out, like I said, source a couple different kinds of compost, uh, the vermiculite, the peat moss, mix it up on a tarp and then, you know, fill up your buckets or your containers or whatever you're using with that mix. Because like I said, really all this container gardening is, is little raised beds. So, you know, I've seen people, I've seen what they call bucket gardens where people have, you know, 50 or 65 gallon buckets and they're just filling it with these, this raised bed, you know, soil, and then they're just growing different crops in it. And another, you know, thing that I would be, you know, kind of look out for when you're doing container gardening is the, uh, the irrigation. So a lot of times people won't have any like drainage holes. Maybe they'll buy these pots and they put them outside and they don't really think about, you know, how's that water going to drain when you water it or when it rains. And sometimes what will happen is, you know, those pots I've seen it way too far, you know, way too often is, you know, people will come to me like, why is my plants, you know, in these, in my containers, why are they all getting yellow and they're dying? And I'm like, well, what kind of drainage is there? And they're like, well, there's a small hole at the bottom. And I'm like, was well, that hole enough to like drain all that water? If we get a big storm, you know, it's just going to sit in a pool of water. So you just want to make sure you have adequate draining uh, in whatever container you're using. Okay. And that's something that you could probably just drill extra holes in, exactly, right? Yeah. Okay. So I got, I, you know, when I did five gallon bucket gardening, you know, I got a bunch of, you know, cat litter comes in those buckets and I would just take it, drill a bunch of holes on the bottom, some on the sides, you know, fill it, make sure I got good drainage. And then that way, you know, I, that soil is not getting drowned out and all my nutrients isn't getting washed out. Okay. So then another benefit of the container gardening is you can kind of move it. So let's say, you know, you're on a patio and as the season progresses, maybe that sun changes, you can kind of move it to a different part of your patio or a different part of your yard. And then, you know, and you know, if you got like deer on your property, maybe they won't come up onto your porch or whatever. So maybe that's a good way to, you know, deter deer or, you know, other insects, you know, uh, animals from yeah. getting into your, your plants. That's a good idea. I think that's a good place to start for people really. Yeah, really who might is. be intimidated by having an actual raised bed, like a bigger raised bed. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Just, just start with the one tomato, you know, that's my, my goal is like, I like feeding people, but I also, I want to inspire people to grow themselves because once you grow a crop or, you know, whether you grow a pot of lettuce or you grow one tomato plant or two tomato plants, you know, it kind of gives you appreciation for like what you're buying from the grocery store or for far, from, from farmers, you know, you'll grow that tomato play it and be like, man, I only got like five big, you know, heirloom tomatoes off of it. And it's like, well, yeah, that's about, that's what you get. Like you saw the effort it took to trellis it, to keep it alive, to water it, to go out there. You got to pick your own tomato, you know, so it kind of just gives that people, you know, that appreciation for, you know, where their actual food is coming from, what's going into that food, you know, so they're not just blindly going to the grocery store and being like, oh, this spinach, that, that, you know, when I go to a store, I'm like, 
I know what it took to grow that. I, you right. Know, yeah. So. It changes the way you view the food and the way that you interact with it and the way that you eat it too. Yeah. Like you just have a deeper appreciation for the food. Right. So do you actually grocery shop or do you grow your own food? I do. And it's always awkward when people see me in a grocery store that like buy from me. They're like, what are you doing here? You buying some produce to sell? And I'm like, nah, I can't grow bananas and I can't grow dates and, you know, oranges. You know, I can't grow all these things. So, you know, I still go. And then when I go to the grocery store, you'll see, you know, I've been caught a few times. I'll be looking at, you know, the kale and the lettuce and I'll be looking at the same crops I grow because that's how I price my stuff. I go to the grocery store. I look at the organic produce. I kind of see, all right, how many kale leaves are in a bunch? What are they charging? You know, what's the quality of it? And that kind of just gives me an idea for, all right, I know my quality is better. I know my price is comparable. You're getting more. So that's where, you know, there's this misconception of, you know, farmer's markets are more expensive than grocery stores, where it's really not. I mean, you know, depending on the part of town you live in, there is some markets, you know, that'll charge more. But most of the time, if you go to a farmer's market and then you go to a grocery store, you know, the farmer's market prices are going to be comparable to the organic prices and sometimes even lower, you know, like at Deerfield Farmer's Market, everybody that sells their heirloom tomatoes there, it's cheaper than Whole Foods, which is a half a mile down the road. And you, you get to meet the farmer. You're actually buying them from the farmer. You know that they were just picked probably a day or two before. So, you know, you got all these additional benefits and they haven't been sitting and being picked up by, you know, a bunch of customers. Right. So it's all those additional benefits. And like I said, sometimes it's cheaper or, you know, if it's not cheaper, it's going to be usually the same price. Yeah. That was something that surprised me because I always thought, oh, it's going to be more expensive or this. But then when I started, so the Deerfield Farmer's Market is on Saturdays Correct. and I usually will grocery shop like on Fridays or something. So what I've learned is one to check out because you usually send out a thing of like what you're going to have at the market. Yep. And so I'll know, OK, I'm not going to get that from Whole Foods because Andy's going to have it. But it, it really it's not that much more. It's not more expensive at all. It doesn't add to my total grocery bill to be right. doing this. If anything, it's saving it. And I'm much more mindful of like, OK, I'm buying this from Farmer Andy. So this I know it was grown here. And so I'm going to prioritize this food over what I would buy at the grocery, which probably isn't even in season, wasn't grown here. Right. Like I'm going to I want more of that stuff of the it didn't travel far to get to me. So that's the food that I want to prioritize because it's going to be fresh. Um, it's also local, which I'm a big fan of. So it really isn't, um, it wasn't a big change for me to do that. And I just, I'm glad that you said that it's not more expensive because it's not, and you're just getting better quality stuff. I mean, I don't think anyone can argue with that. Right. <laughs> like you really are, especially if you're going to a farmer who's doing a lot of the things that we talked about yeah. previously. Yeah. So and that's like you said, that helps with the seasonal because that's what our bodies like, like they thrive on is that seasonal, you know, you're not supposed to be eating watermelon in January. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just, when you, when you start to live and start to eat seasonally, you, you, you also, you know, gain that greater appreciation of, you know, if you're having green bean casserole at Thanksgiving, it's like well, green beans don't even grow here in this kind of weather. So you're like, well, those green beans had to come from, you know, some other climate. So it kind of makes you appreciate. And that's what I always tell people, you know, some people will come to the market and they'll be like, you know, especially when it gets towards the end of the season, they'll, they'll ask like, well, you're going to have this next year, next week, or you're going to have this in two weeks. And I'm like, there's no guarantees. Like this is out of my control. It's kind of, you know, I have so much control, but it's up to mother nature and the weather, you know, the conditions like insects, what if something eats it? So I always tell people like, if you see something at the market, you want to try, I usually tell people buy it then, you know, some of the stuff it'll store, you know, if you get like beets, it'll store. Uh, but you know, if you see something at the market, I'd say buy it. And then if you come back next week and they have it again and you liked it, buy it again. But like, you know, I've, there's too many times where I've seen something at a market. And I'm like, oh, I'll get it next time or I'll get it, you know, later in the season. And then they don't have it, yeah. you know, so. 
I think the, I love that you mentioned eating seasonally in that way. Cause that's huge. I, I've been doing that probably like the past year I've been more diligent with it. And it's, it makes such a difference too. Again, it comes back to that appreciation of this is actually what's growing right now in the earth. So this is right. probably what's most beneficial for me. Um, I'm the same there, even like with smoothies, I like smoothies. I drink them all year round typically, but I don't love them as much in the winter. Cause it feels weird to me yeah. to be having some of these berries and all these in this cold thing when it's already cold outside. That's so, oatmeal. Or... <laughs> yeah. So it's like having this, the really kind of tuning in to your body and like what makes sense right now. Like it's cold outside. So root vegetables are going to make more sense right. or, you know, having things that are grounded. So, um, it's just having that perspective. And we did an episode, I know you listened to it on Ayurveda, yep. which that's really based in Ayurveda exactly. is the seasonal foods, the, you know, having the grounded foods in the winter, having more like, you know, um, like earthy or I guess like higher up foods in the, in the summertime, like things that are going to cool you off. So yep. it's just, again, I think the appreciation comes with that. And so these are things that are going to hopefully uh, change for people when they go to farmer's market and start thinking about it in this way after we had this conversation. Exactly. Cause I definitely think about it way more now of like, okay, that's probably like, oh, that was flown in from Mexico. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. should I just wait and get this from Andy tomorrow? You know, you think about stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, if you do want some beets in the winter or, you know, if you can't find something, you know, I'm guilty of it too, where, you know, it, like for me, it's, it's, it is hard to buy like tomatoes in the winter now, because once you've had homegrown tomatoes, it's hard to buy store-bought tomatoes, but you know, there may be some time I want some salsa in December. And it's like, I don't have tomatoes for that. If I haven't canned tomatoes for salsa, it's like, all right, I got to go buy tomatoes that were maybe grown in Mexico in a, you know, a hoop house or something. And it's like, that's fine. But ideally, you know, it's not what my body's craving. You know, my body's, you know, now that I've been eating this way, my body craves when it, you know, when it's strawberry season, I know that that, that season only two or three weeks long in our region. So I'm going to eat strawberries just I'm going to go hard on the strawberries for two or three weeks until I'm tired of them. And then I know I won't get strawberries again for, you know, 11 months. Right. And then, you right. know, once green beans come in, it's like, all right, I'm eating a lot of green beans now. And then tomatoes, you know, I'll be eating tomatoes like apples for, you know, three months. And then once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. So. Have you, have you thought about like, or I, you probably have, but in what way has your health changed by eating majority of the food that you're growing yourself like because you went wheat you went vegan right so like how has that shifted for you personally of like this is these are the changes i've seen just one by going vegan and two actually eating majority of the stuff that i eat ver or that i grow versus buying yeah i mean it's, it's just the nutrients i feel like i have more energy like i feel more vitalized when i eat you know the stuff that i'm growing not only do i have a deeper connection with it you know that's why you know if you have a garden you know you have a deeper connection with that food but i also know that there's more nutrients in it you know, I know that the way I'm growing it, you know, I know it's sustainable. So I have that deeper connection to it, not only like nutritionally, but just that, I don't know, psychologically and emo emotionally, mm -hmm. you know, I have that connection to it. And, you know, that was one of the best things that when I grew my first, you know, tomato and it had my first homegrown tomato that I grew, I mean, it was like, I almost got high off of it. It was like a whole nother level. I was like, oh my God, like I, I grew this, like I grew this, I produced it. And it's one of the best tomatoes I've ever had. And that yeah. was one of the best feelings I've, you know, experienced in my life. And then, you know, it was like that next year when I was, you know, giving away my produce and, you know, I had a neighbor come back and they're like, that was the best tomato. And I was like, man, eating your produce is one thing, but when you can share it with the community, it was like, that was like a whole nother high for me. I was like, 
oh man, I, I got like tingles in my body. And I was like, that was, that's even a better feeling for me is being able to like, not only grow it and eating myself, but also be able to share it with the community. Yeah. And that's kind of like why it ended up snowballing into, you know, if you would have asked me six years ago, if I was going to be a farmer, I'd be like, you're crazy. There's no, there's no way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you are a farmer. I'm <laughs> glad that you and I have connected more over the years. Cause again, I had all these questions in my head <laughs> yeah. and then the more that we talked, I'm like, okay, I feel like we're on the same page. I feel like I can ask him these things. So yeah, that's now, awesome. Now I can reference people to your podcast and be like, you want to know more, you yes, know, come check out definitely. this. So I went over a little bit more in depth and I, you know, I don't, you don't get it. Like I said at the beginning, I don't get to get this in depth at the market just because, you know, I'm trying to just keep the line down. And, you know, I do like to have that interaction because I know people are interested. Right. And, you know, this year, like I had a CSA, I was delivering CSAs and someone started a garden. They're like, can you take two minutes and look at our garden? So I took two minutes and they were, they were so grateful that I took two minutes to go back and look at their garden and see what they were growing. You know, they started using insect netting because I told them about it last year and they were like, how do you keep your green so, you know, so hole free and so bug free? And I'm like, it's this insect netting. This is where you can get it at online. Yeah. I said, you just get some hoops. And sure enough, I went and looked at their garden and they had insect netting over there. Like our garden is doing so much better this year. And that's just like, that's what really makes me happy is just hearing people, you know, yeah. they're like, oh, my garden's doing great. And I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah. I was like, I know, you know, most people can't grow as much food as I do to feed their whole family. So, you know, people are like, well, you know, you're selling tomato plants. Aren't people not going to stop buying tomatoes from you. And I'm like, no, they're going to, they're going to grow that tomato plant. And they're going to see how much work goes into growing a tomato plant. And then they're going to come back and they're going to have a greater appreciation for the tomatoes that I'm selling. Right. So exactly. it comes down the same thing at the farm, you know, people are like, well, isn't, you know, that other farmer at the market, your competition. And it's like, no, the market's kind of like farmers markets are kind of like a family. So even though you have, you know, five or six produce vendors, maybe they're all selling tomatoes, they're not, you know, they're competition in a way, but we're also really, really close friends, almost family. Yeah. And, you know, some people don't understand. They think it's like, oh, well, I buy from you. I'm not buying from them. And it's like, no, buy some from me, but also, you know, go down there, buy some from them, you know, share the, you know, maybe I have something that's better, but you know, all farms have different soils too. So, you know, my, my produce may have a little bit different nutritional value than maybe someone else who's, you know, they maybe have a different soil structure. Maybe they have different cover crops or you know, sourcing different compost and their crops may be, you know, have a little different nutrients. So like my tomatoes and someone else's tomatoes, you know, they may not be the same. Yeah. And ultimately you just, you're both there to have people eat better food, better yeah. quality we, food. We're sharing the same mission yeah, goal. Like so, we just want to feed the community with fresh nutrient dense food. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, we share the same, same vision. Yeah. I'm so excited for people to listen to this conversation. I think it's going to be helpful because again, I think a lot of people are interested in this. They don't know the questions to ask. They don't know, you know, what goes into it. They know that it's a lot of work, but they don't quite know. And so you explaining all this is much deeper appreciation for the work that you do and that all farmers do seriously, because I mean, it's just a lot, but how amazing. And I'm so thankful that you guys do this and that you were willing to share this information with people too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's customers like you that come out every week and yes. support us. I mean, that's, that's why we're there. You know, yeah. if it wasn't for the customers, you know, we wouldn't be there. So, yeah. you know, the customers mean just as much as the customer, you know, you mean as much to us as we mean to you. Yeah. So we, we all appreciate the, you know, everybody that comes out. 
Well, I appreciate and spreading that. the word. You know, if you like what you have, you know, we always encourage people, you know, bring a family member, bring your mom, bring your, you know, I've seen you bring a friend. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the more you can spread it, that's how the markets grow. Then we can get more produce vendors and then, you know, you have more options and that's, you know, it's just I know. I always tell people like, if they're like, do you want to get coffee on Sunday? I'm like, or Saturday. I'm like, well, do you want to go to the farmer's market first? <laughs> we like, got coffee there. Yeah, I mean, we... You can get your coffee and, you know, <laughs> right. and your produce and, you know, if you want to splurge right. get a little you know muffin or scone right. you know you can get it right. all and i'm like well we can stop at the farmer's market first or do this so <laughs> yeah. yeah anyone who wants to come definitely let me know again the season is now it's gonna be the off season i guess with markets but we do the deerfield farmer's market does have every third saturday yeah, right so in the winter so our main season ends the last week of october so it was the 30th of october was our last regular season market and then in the winter from so starting in november all the way through april we run a market it's every third Saturday in the same location of Kingswood Park. Uh, it's 4188 Irwin Simpson Road. Uh, we run a market. It's every third Wednesday, every third Saturday of the month from 10 to 11 a.m. under yeah. the community pavilion. Uh, you can find out that information. Uh, the market website is DeerfieldFarmersMarket.com has all the information, the hours, the winter markets, the location. Uh, it's got a list of all the farmers. You can read a little blurb on them. Uh, and then my website is Cincy Urban Farm. That's C-I-N-C-Y urbanfarm.com. Uh, if you go to where to get produce on my page, it'll go, it'll have the market website. It'll have the hours. Uh, it'll have, you can find information about my CSA there. I also sell to a little grocery store at a farm that I rent land from. Uh, it's up on Route 42 in Fields Ertle. So they have a little farm store that's open Tuesday through Saturday. Uh, it's got all their hours on there and all their information and you can go yeah. from there. What, and then share your Instagram too, because you share stuff on there too. Yeah, just so like the process of some of the work that gonna, you explain. I was going to say, that's the, you know, one, you know, since I don't do like tours, I always like to show like if I'm harvesting lettuce, kind of show the lettuce under the netting, uh, you know, maybe show the green beans or, some, you know, just, just little snapshots throughout the season. And your uh, dog enjoying yeah, and them my too. Dog. He's, yeah. he's, he's my, you know, what I call my livestock. He's a, you know, that's the, I do got some bees, but he's the main livestock. Yeah. Uh, he mainly eats more produce than, anything but so yeah my instagram and facebook are both at cincy urban farm like i said c-i-n-c-y urban farm uh it's both instagram and facebook where i'll share stories and post and that kind of like you know gives you a little idea of what's going on in the farm sometimes i'll post you know when tomato season is upon us you know people be asking every week you know usually i'll post a picture of the first tomato I pick. So you can kind of start to see like, you know, what's seasonal or when spinach is coming back in season or, you know, so I kind of, kind of helps you keep updated on what's, what's happening on the farm and what's going to be available that week. Yeah. I love it. I always enjoy seeing the stories and seeing, you know, what you're picking and also seeing how, I use the word funky, but not in a bad way, how funky things look because in the grocery store, everything is so uniform. Everything looks so perfect. And right. then you pull out your carrots and I'm like, wait, <laughs> what? That's what carrots look like. Yeah, That's so, one of my favorite things to harvest. I call them carrots with character. Yeah. You, know, you don't always get those perfect long carrots. No. It's like, it's kind of like a treasure hunt. You'll pull out the carrot and you'll just, you know, if you're harvesting with someone, you're like, look at this carrot. This one's funny. Yeah. You, know? yeah. Then you, you take them to market and people are like, I want that carrot. It looks really cool. Exactly. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. You know. I know. I love love those carrots. So that's awesome. So Farmer Andy, I, we usually have a health challenge at the end of every episode for listeners. So what would be the challenge that you provide for this episode? I'm going to give two challenges. Okay. Uh, since it's kind of the off season at market, I would say look up and research kind of where 
the closest farmer's market is to you. If you're not, if you don't already go to a farmer's market, uh, look up, you know, where a farmer's market close to you is just type in, you know, in Google or whatever search in search engine you use, uh, you know, type in farmer's market near me or farmer's market with your zip code, you know, it'll pull, pull ones up, you know, look on there, see if they have a winter market. Um, you know, if you don't attend this year, mark your calendar to attend next year. And then my other challenge that you can put into practice, uh, since like Evie said, I am vegan and that's how I got started in all this, uh, something I believe in heavily. So I would just say, try maybe, you know, it's been a thing, but meatless Mondays, try one day a week, maybe cutting out meat from your diet, uh, eating more fruits and vegetables, carbs, rice, oatmeal, you know, your favorite fruit, your favorite vegetable, have a salad, uh, but just try, you know, one day a week, you know, give it a try to see if you can cut out, you know, all meat. Yeah. I love that. That sounds good. Definitely something that's doable and practical. Um, so, all right. Those are your challenges for this week. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Uh, this was awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in, especially with just how busy your schedule is. My gosh. I mean, all the stuff we talked about. So I appreciate you doing that. Um, if you enjoyed this episode and you know, someone who would benefit from it, please, please share this episode with them. Definitely follow farmer Andy on Instagram, check out his website, come to the farmer's market. You know, I'll see you there. I, (laughs) I definitely will be there through the winter. Um, and then definitely in the busier seasons, I'd love to go with you. Um, it's such a nice time. It's so fun fun to see all these people who, again, have the same mission. They just want to feed their community with high quality food and interact with their uh, community members. So um, we can definitely check that out together if you're interested. So, all right, everybody, hope you enjoyed this. Share this episode. You can follow me on, on, you can follow me on Instagram at Holistically Restored, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.